What is heritage? Heritage kind of eludes easy definition, which is an easy way of getting out of the question. That's Cameron Logan. But really, for me, it is a bit of a bromide. It's a bit of a meaningless term, to be perfectly honest. On one hand, I I tend to talk a lot about conservation because I'm interested in the action you can take meaningfully to protect places and integrate them. And I'm interested in the sort of architectural and urbanistic processes that interact with it. But heritage itself is its really a, a way of talking about culture. Heritage is those things that we want to value and treat as separate, not simply uh, reducible to market value, for example, that they have some ongoing meaning that transcends any you know, individual's right to dispose of or use, that it is shared in some sense and that it provides meaning. I guess, to, to be passed on or whatever. That, that's, a, that's a general definition. And I think sometimes it's hard to hold that apart from definitions of culture, but that's the one we go with. I like that definition because I started the podcast for this textbook by saying urbanism is a pretty much meaningless term. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a running theme in the book. Well, I guess all of our, all of our concepts and terms, you know, that we use to, for these processes are difficult and they're not, they don't define anything in any clear, simple way. And heritage is another one like that, but people rally around it. They want it, whatever it is. So therefore we, we use it and we deal with it and we try and build something meaningful out of it. Welcome back to the Understanding Urbanism podcast. I'm Dallas Rogers. This is the podcast that accompanies the book of the same name, Understanding Urbanism, which is edited by me, Dallas Rogers, Adrian Keane, Taran Elizahe, and Jacqueline Nelson. The book is published by Palgrave Macmillan, and like always, super good to have you along. In this episode, we'll be talking about Chapter 6, Heritage Cities. The chapter's written by James Lesh and Cameron Logan, And like always, I'm paraphrasing and quoting James and Cameron in this episode. And we've already heard from Cameron. Uh, I'm Associate Professor Cameron Logan. I'm an urban and architectural historian, and I work here in the School of Architecture, Design and Planning at the University of Sydney. And my co-author for the chapter on heritage cities is Dr. James Lesh, who works in the School of Architecture, Building and Planning at the University of Melbourne. This podcast, like always, is an interpretation of James and Cameron's work. So any errors, if there are any, are my own. And it's important to note that I recorded this episode on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation here in Sydney, Australia. My five key takeaways from this chapter are, first... Heritage is a descriptive and regulatory force that shapes cities. It's a way of describing and regulating the physical environments of our cities, particularly those parts of the cities that we've inherited from the past. Second, that any attempt to protect these places can both shape and hinder the development of cities. Third, Heritage can inspire design creativity and offer a deeper sense of place and historical continuity. 
but it can also cause social harm in the present. Fourth, heritage ideas and regulations often reflect the broader power dynamics in society, and some groups have more power to influence heritage management than others. And fifth, understanding the history of the modern conservation movement is important for understanding how we manage heritage today. In the chapter, you say that heritage is a force that shapes cities. How is this the case? What are some of the forces that are at play in the heritage landscape? Well, one of the ways that I have talked about this in the past, not expressed in these terms in the chapter itself, is that heritage can be a mode of retrospective city making, if you like, so that rather than the prospective plans for making the city for laying out new sections, developing new quarters, which is often the substance of planning and urbanism. Heritage has been a way, increasingly over time, as it's become integrated with into the planning systems, is a way of, of saying, oh, we're going to take what's there from the past that exists in current cities, may have been planned as a prospective thing at some point, or may have just grown up somewhat ad hoc, and saying, well, that's what we want. Mm. So in that sense, it becomes part of urbanism in its broader remit, as opposed to a, so, a separate or opposite domain, if you like. Mm. So in some ways, instead of saying we have this landscape and we will develop a plan that's forward-looking and design the place from this point in time, it kind of uses the past as a template, if you like, for what should be there in the future. Sure, the past or indeed the existing and saying, well, what do we value about the existing and let's start working with that or indeed more traditionally, let's protect that and then move on. But I, I suppose more increasingly today, how do we work with that or integrate the, the sort of conception of the past as a sort of and, and the existing places as a valuable resource that will be part of the city-making process? Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in the history of heritage conservation movement, uh, but maybe we should just start with the idea of history itself and kind of remembering the past. What would you say about that? I mean, there's a lot to say about that in a way. Heritage is connected. The, the, the process of protecting things is connected with the way people look and value the past and, and a sort of, I guess, a conservative or, or in terms of political philosophy, conservative vision relates to the kind of Burkean idea of society as a partnership between, you know, those who've gone before, uh, those who live now and those in the future. That's also, you know, I suppose an ethic that underpins the heritage movement to some extent in its in its development over time. And so that implicitly suggests that the past has some claim upon us ethically or politically in the present. And I guess that's one of the things that's underpinned the heritage movement and that's made it oppose uh, forms of optimistic modernisation, if you like, that have tended to be part and parcel of 20th century planning and modernisation. Give us a potted history of the conservation movement and its relationship to heritage protection. Well, the conservation movement itself is usually narrated as beginning in the 19th century. Now, there is a deeper histories to sort of place protection, which go well back, and that in some ways in the present, we look to Indigenous societies as for their modes of stewardship of the environment. But in terms of the conventional histories that are told sort of urbanistically, I suppose, of 
the conservation movement. They start in the 19th century, usually around controversies connected with uh, how to protect the manner in which we would protect great ancient buildings. And typically when they talk about that, they're talking about the great cathedrals or minsters in France and England. Paralleling that, by the late 19th century, you had a growth in what we might call sort of um, the town as monument or the idea of protected historic town centres, and this in particular in Germany and Italy, these evolved by the late 19th century. And that kind of conceived of this combination of townscape and landscape as itself a historic monument or sort of something with artistic value worth protecting. So that's sort of in place by the end of the 19th century. Into the 20th century, you get growing interest, I guess, of actual state activity and indeed one of the first international agreements is a protection against naval bombardment, which is a sort of form of heritage protection of cities because it's about... During war. Exactly. So that it's attempting to proclaim some rules of war around saying you can't just park a powerful uh, naval vessel outside this sort of historic town and just bomb it into submission because it's you're destroying the not past. just civilian, you know, it's to protect civilians, but actually culture in a way. So, And that's one of the, the earlier, I guess, agreements and doesn't really have much teeth because in, there's no really inter- international structure at that point that can be enforced in the way that uh, we have to some degree after World War II. Then, of course, the, the great growth of the contemporary system happens after World War II, following the tremendous destruction caused by World War II, aerial bombardment in particular, and then the programs of extensive urban reconstruction or urban renewal, so-called, that occurred in the post-war decades and it caused huge disquiet and upset amongst urban populations and led to a lot of the more extensive legislative apparatus that was designed to protect heritage, especially the urban scale, neighbourhoods, cityscapes and so on. Where is heritage protection at today out of that long history? By, by the mid-60s, in a sense, as that movement matures, you arrive at what some observers and historians of this have called the sort of heroic age of conservation or the heroic period of conservation, broadly the 60s through the 80s, where ethically it's, it's really empowered. The idea of preserving the past becomes somewhat central to discourses on architecture and the built environment more broadly. And so heritage is ascendant at some level, or it's been described that way, uh, as opposed to a sort of activity of antiquarians and uh, cranks of various types on the margins of the urban process. It moves more to the centre. And I guess in the time since then, since the 1980s, it's perhaps fallen back a little bit. And I guess a new, more powerful sort of ethical imprimatur or uh, dispensation has arisen around sustainability, but it's taken its place, I suppose, alongside other planning and urbanisation models that have grown up or or movements in a sense that have grown up since the 19th century. And so it finds its place more within it rather than having this sort of confidence of ascendancy that seemed to enjoy in a period of policy innovation and and widespread activism in the 1960s, 70s and 80s. You were talking about buildings being protected, towns being protected. And I know that people start to come into play. I'm thinking about places like Miller's Point, where we start to value not only the place and the buildings, but the people who live there as well. How do those three things go together? If um, my co-author James Lesh is here, I'm sure we would have already been talking about people earlier in the conversation. In a sense, the movements that arose in the 60s and 70s were not only concerned with the built environment, the mechanisms we put in place to protect it tended to be largely concerned with that. But the the social movements and the, the politics and 
in, in some ways, the heritage conservation movement in those periods was a sort of counter-hegemonic political movement in some of its dimensions, things like the Green Bands in New South Wales, other uh, urban social movements around the world focused on who has the right to make decisions were about people and they're about people's connection to place. They're about the entitlement of working class people, for example, to stay situated in environments that were seen as slums or uh, needing forms of renewal that post-war urbanists, planners wanted to, to send in the bulldozers for. And so people are infused in that process going back quite a long way. By about the 19. 80s and 90s, people start talking about it more in a sort of sort of academic literature and theoretically, I suppose, to say, oh, you know, heritage is about people. You know, I guess it implicitly always was, but because of the forms of professional specialisation around protecting fabric and through archaeology and architecture and so on, potentially got away from those things at various points, especially in the professional domain. But the social movement politics that underpinned it was always about people. It's just that the it gets written in more that it's about people. But of course, one of the things that was noted is very hard to protect people's people. protections to places, yeah, uh, yeah. connections to places. What's much easier to protect is the place itself, a building, a neighbourhood or whatever, um, because people's connections to things are, are ephemeral, they're cultural. Uh, what, what, what are you protecting? And so this is there's a vexed relationship in a sense overall between the concept of heritage as a broad idea about what we in, inherit culturally and what we value and the processes of actually requiring conservation of particular places. I'd like to turn to heritage protection in urban development, and there are some good things about heritage protection and there are some not so good things. The, the intersection between urban development and heritage is everywhere in, in the sort of regulatory apparatus. The extent that it's regulated, to the extent that places are listed and there are rules around what can be redeveloped and planning processes around them, the two things are hand in glove. It's not like oh, we have heritage over here and we have planning processes over there. If you're in New South Wales today, you're involved in any uh, sort of neighbourhood planning processes, more than likely some sort of heritage consultant is involved writing a report looking at the impact of development on heritage and and that's required through the reg- regulatory process. Whether you regard that as a good or bad thing, it's probably not really my <laughs> my particular interest or, or or strength in saying so. You know, there's it's good for jobs for people in heritage. I'll say that it is could also be regarded as an overreach at times, the same as other planning regulations. But the reasons these things exist, of course, is because they tend to be pretty popular with residents, unless it's your own place. So as with other kind of uh, things that are there to protect public interest, it constrains individual rights and that those things come into conflict. So that's can, what's can good an, about it, I suppose. Can you give an example of that? Classic example is a, is a little old lady in North Sydney who has her Edwardian cottage from built circa 1900 uh, and it's alongside the CBD, but for some reason it's been picked up in some heritage study at some point along the way and it's listed as an as an item and she, and this, the, the children most likely of this little old lady are sitting there thinking, well, why do we have to? Why do we just have to sell this as a house when the next block up they sold it to someone for millions of dollars to develop a tall tower, and that in fact it's less valued because that tall tower is there as a you know nineteen hundred cottage. So I guess there's this sense of it, that arbitrariness around where what, what is designated as significant, and there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of other players, and it depends who you are in the equation really whether you own the house whether whether you're a neighbor and you want to see the house protected whether you're the son or the daughter and you want to realize the real estate value of this so in that sense i think that heritage is fairly subjective enterprise to be engaged in on the ground 
Well, well, it is. Its value, obviously, is sort of differentially available. That sounds a bit jargonistic, but you know what I mean? It's not, it's not once we've listed something, we all don't equally enjoy it as a public. People tend to, when asked, say they like the idea that things are being protected. And I guess there's a sort of willingness to pay if you do environmental economics. People say we're willing to pay some cost to have that protected and just to know it's there, that people are doing something to make sure that the environment is not left to the sort of ravages of just free development, same as I guess most people see the planning system as more or less valid, except when they interact with it themselves and find it frustrating. Yeah. And, and the heritage system is, is very similar to that. Who gets to influence the heritage management systems in our cities? Well, I mean, it's it, it, there's a domain of heritage professionals who are most obviously shaping its day-to-day instantiation, the, the day-to-day processes through which asset owners go when they try to make change, that they encounter this group of professionals. They're usually often architects, planners, or work under the, the, the aegis of heritage consultancy. Uh, and they obviously shape outcomes in through their modes of professional practice in a really daily, you know, sort of everyday way. In terms of at the higher level, I suppose, you would say, you know, there's there's a sort of political process or policy making process that shapes it. And of course that, like other things, is is down to political elites who who thinks one form of planning protection or heritage protection is valid and, and who doesn't. And obviously that is occurs a lot at the local government level. So it's not as simple as saying one of our political parties supports it and the other doesn't. In fact, in Australia, both political parties have shown widespread support for some form, you know, forms of heritage protection. Outside the political elites, I'd say neighbourhood groups have been strong actors and in particular neighbourhood groups in like high socioeconomic areas tend to have been very strong as they are in, in other forms of planning as well where their ability to exercise influence over local political processes and local planning processes is strong because they're well-resourced. Uh, they often have lawyers at their disposal amongst their population. They obviously, some are lawyers. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> And so they tend to then be able to put arguments that speak directly to the matter as it's written in law, as opposed to simply the sort of feeling of being subject to something, which is more the way the rest of us out, who, who, who maybe can't so expertly identify the right clause in the act, might be subject to change and feel it's unjust, but aren't really able to articulate why it is actually against the the policy or the legal framework that the council is supposed to act under. So in that sense, well-resourced local groups are are powerful actors in heritage and and have outsized influence, more influence than people with perhaps less time, resources and understanding of the system. In a multicultural country like Australia, where we are constantly debating what our core values are, how hard is it to do something like heritage conservation? Well, it's, it's very hard. I mean, it's simple to go along business as usual and protect things that look like a picture of heritage, that little old lady's house, whether or not it's ju- just action to list that in a local environment plan under the sort of New South Wales system or not. That's quite easy to do in a way. What's much harder is for us to grapple with bigger questions around does the existing environment and, in fact, those things that perhaps are hidden in plain view, for example, the heritage of Aboriginal people in Australia, which is both everywhere distributed in our landscape and almost entirely invisible to the settler population, both old colonial settlers and new arrivals. 
And so therefore, how do we meaningfully address that other than through the traditional means, which are sort of stones and bones archaeology, where we find something, protect that little thing, that little patch perhaps, or have a permit, in fact, more likely get a permit to destroy it. How do we meaningfully go about recognising that? And that's a really difficult and interesting challenge, which isn't just about heritage, but heritage is really central to that because heritage is the the domain within our city-making processes, within our planning processes, which says, well, we should understand and respect what's there and the layers of, of meaning and sort of cultural ownership of places. That's what it says sort of in theory about what we're supposed to be doing, but how do you actually do that in practice and make that meaningful? I think we're really just beginning to grapple with that in Australia. And and there are good examples. I've just been reading a document that our colleague here, Ali Davison, alerted me to, which is Tweed Shire's uh, Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Management Plan, which is really complex and rich sort of mapping of a whole territory of that local government area for sensitivity to Aboriginal cultural values, as opposed to simply sort of spot listing or identifying deposits of, of, of remains that have an archaeological, physical presence. And so there are signs that there is political will, there is uh, knowledge and willingness to work with Aboriginal people themselves to make those processes more meaningful. But, you know, as you know, we have a baleful record on uh, wherever the settler society, when I say we, I consider myself part of that, attempted to intervene or provide forms of justice to Aboriginal people around land and culture. We've tended to provide a sort of new bureaucratic overlay, whether it's native title, um, the land rights system in New South Wales and elsewhere, becomes deeply politicised and creates a set of new problems, even though it's an attempt to try and uh, provide a form of justice and compensation, cultural compensation to Aboriginal people. Hi, my name is James Lesh. I'd like to give you some tips about how you might go out to the city and read the urban landscape, see places for the signs of heritage and history in the urban environment. When you're walking around, look up, look down, look around you. Historians have a phrase for this, we call it the urban palimpsest. And we understand that we can read the city and read places in that way. The most obvious are ways that buildings and sites and complexes and precincts have been adapted and reused. When you walk into a building that today is a shop or a community centre or a gym, maybe it was once a church or a post office, or some other former use. All over the inner suburbs of our cities, we see warehouses today in former industrial areas that are now apartments or co-working spaces or coffee shops. But you can also see less obvious signs of change, less obvious signs of adaptation. But then lastly, and I think in some ways most importantly, is the hidden traces, the deep heritage of our cities the ways the streets and the paths and the parks and the gardens all move around and flow through the city following trails that have been in place for many, many, many years, hundreds of years, millennia even. And when you're walking around, you can sense, if you close your eyes, 
the time continuum of those who have come before, those who are there with us right now, but also those who will enter the city in the future, because we all, in this sense, become custodians of the city 